Yes, welcome to the NBA panel. Today, I am joined by the Basketball Hall of Fame. Today's show is going to be crazy. First up, I'll be joined by the CEO, President of the Basketball Hall of Fame, John DeLiva. John, what's going on? Well, um, just go, I'll roll into it, and you feel free to interrupt uh, okay. if I'm not heading in the right direction. But okay. um, this summer, I celebrated my 20th year at the Hall of Fame. Okay. started in the uh, summer of 99. Uh, as the vice president of uh, marketing, right. um, and we were at that point, and prior to that, I was at Spalding Sporting Goods, um, where I uh, ran the team sports business, kind of the inflatables, football, basketball, volleyball, okay. baseball, and um, But the opportunity to uh, open up a new Hall of Fame was exciting, right. and so I, I left Spalding and came uh, here as VP of marketing, and then about 18 months later, took over as chief operating officer, and then six months after that, got the CEO role. Um, and it was uh, interesting because uh, at that time, we had a capital campaign underway that, that uh, really was, was failing. Right. Uh, and didn't raise enough money to, to really build the building. Um, but uh, we went ahead and built the building and had some debt. And for the first several years, we had... Uh, quite a bit of uh, financial issues, um, almost like a day-to-day kind of combat right. thing. Uh, but we worked very hard over the time frame to uh, get more people involved with the Hall of Fame, uh, be, frankly, more friendly and, and, and engaged with the Hall of Famers themselves. We changed the, the announcements that we do to the All-Star Game and to the Final Four so that we elevated uh, knowledge and certainly um, – Elevated the the for, for the for those coming in the the level of the announcement um, and and the newsworthiness of it and we've uh, you know really worked on our enshrinement um, ceremony which you've attended and right. and so we um, we just finished kind of all the culmination of that work reconnecting or connecting I should say for for some reason the Hall of Fame didn't have uh, a strong relationship you know in the in the early years the uh, 60s 70s 80s and 90s with the basketball community. It was right. kind of insular. So we, we set out to change that. Um, and uh, I guess the proof that we made it, we, we started a capital campaign in 2013, um, knowing that we needed to, to do some things in the museum and, and right. uh, technology needed to be updated. And we, we announced a $20 million goal. And we had known back in in the late nineties that we announced a $37 million goal and raised five. So right. we were cautious about the 20, but all that connect connective tissue that we did in between the opening of this in 2013 worked because we almost immediately hit our $20 million goal. Right. Um, led by Jerry Colangelo, who's our chairman. And then, um, we raised it to 25 and then we raised it again to 30. And, uh, at the end of last year, 2018, we closed out at $30 million. And I think you probably saw some of the construction that we've done. Yes. And we continue, we continue to do that now. In fact, Center Core is all uh, ripped up. We're, we've replaced the way that we we um, we showcase our Hall of Famers. I hope you saw that, Rum. Did you? Yes, yes. That's yes. the room they had to inter- right. the post interviews in after the arm ceremony. Yes. That, yeah. I, lo- yeah. I love that. And so the technology yeah. in that room is crazy. <laughs> it, is, it is awesome. So if you if you imagine yourself 
the back at center court, all those plaques now are coming down because okay. that's that's the old way we used to go Hall of Famers. So we're we're working on the inside of the dome now, and, and okay. we'll be done with third floor and the um, the uh, floor floor, the uh, center court. Okay. Uh, hopefully by December, or then by by next enshrinement when you come back. Okay. Uh, we will completely redone the museum inside and out, top to bottom. Um, and so. Uh, we feel really good about that, and then financially, we're we're in a very good space now. For the first time, we're we're going to be um, as people pay off their pledges on this campaign, they right. we will have a, a money in the bank. We'll have an endowment, where whereas before we used to have debt. So um, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a good story right now. We feel very good about it. And of course, we got a very exciting class coming up next year. We've got yes, Kobe and yes. Barnett and maybe Greg Popovich, if he'll allow himself to be nominated, and, and that's just for starters. You know, Rudy T. And, yes. And, uh, you know, who who else? Um, so it's it's very exciting. So, you know, we're pleased that um, the whole museum will be redone, um, and we're going to showcase this like never before with with the class of 2020. And then going forward, the classes are very attractive. So, yes. um, you know, we really kind of turned a corner, and and. Um, you know, we're doing a lot of things, as you probably know, uh, outside of Springfield, because uh, obviously not everybody's going to get to Springfield, Massachusetts to visit the Hall of Fame. Yes. Um, and, but we want to connect again with basketball fans as well. So we do many collegiate events. We do national high school events. We've been back this January uh, here in Springfield. Uh, coincidentally, it's at Springfield College where the game was born. Uh, we have... Uh, LeBron's son and Dwayne Wade's son who play on the same high school team coming to play in our event. So we expect that to be uh, high energy, if you will. Yes. Um, and then we have another high school event out in Phoenix for the West Coast folks. And then we have uh, basketball events in Toronto, Brooklyn, uh, Phoenix, uh, the new uh, uh, Chase Center uh, out in San Francisco will be at, Mohegan's son. Uh, we've got about... Uh, 36 branded games with the Hall of Fame on them and and uh, about five or six weekends of, of uh, early season basketball branded the Hall of Fame. And the idea there is to is to make um, you know the Hall of Fame not just a backward-looking organization, but be producing basketball right. events that are exciting today. So we, we become relevant, not always looking in the rearview mirror, but uh, we want to be out front and having a connection with fans today. Um, yes. And they, just don't think about us when they want to think about basketball history. They think about us producing, you know, very high end events with quality teams. Uh, and in fact, in 2020, we will be um, going to London uh, to the O2 Center um, in December of 2020. And I know um, we have Kentucky and Michigan um, that are going to play over okay. there. So a lot of interest. So it's a, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a cool story that, um, you know, museums are supposed to kind of be backward looking and historical looking and maybe a little stodgy and boring, but we've given where the game is, right. uh, um, you know, we've had, to, we've had to react to that basketball and we've had to keep up with that. And thankfully we've been able to. Yes. I have to say covering the basketball hall of fame the last three years have been a, a great experience and honor experience. It's grown every year. I've, I've been there and watching the fans come from all over just coming to Massachusetts, yes, yes. The fans yeah, come from, <laughs> yes, different countries. It's, I've met a couple of fans from China that came the year um, Jason Kidd got inducted. 
I was able to talk to him and ask him how what his experience was. And he said he came just for Jason Kidd. Other fans came just for the experience. The Best Hall of Fame yeah. is a great destination. Is a great destination. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's one thing that people say about our enshrinement ceremony is that uh, you know the Hall of Famers and honorees are very approachable. Um, very few, you know, wave you off. Right. Um, there are some some that wave you off. Mr. Russell being coming to mind, but um, he deserves the right to right. do that. But <laughs> most, of the, most of the inductees are very approachable. They're happy. They're humble. You've you've heard the speeches or the comments. Yes. Um, this is a time where their their life just stops in front of them, and they they have to look back at their overall basketball career and, and right. all they see are the faces of people that, you know, whether it was family or high school coaches or college coaches or whatever it was, those people that helped propel their career forward. John, I have to say you've done a great job leading the Basketball Hall of Fame up into what we see today. What was your own thoughts when you, when this position first became open? Well, I thought it was exciting. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of a local guy. I grew up about an hour away from here in Amherst, Massachusetts, where UMass and Amherst College are. Um, and um, it wasn't too far away from here. So I, I kind of in kind of near my hometown and I'm, I'm kind of a native. So it was exciting to be a, a part of what was going to be a breakthrough Hall of Fame construction. And it, uh, it was a, a, uh, a real punctuation point for the city of Springfield. Springfield's the largest city in Western Massachusetts, so it was, it was kind of exciting to be involved um, on the economic development front, um, as well as the experience that I had at, at Spalding. You know, basically that the basketball business was our biggest business. We had a 55% market share, kind of dominated the business. Um, now, as you've met me, you know I'm I'm not a player. I'm all five foot nine and a half, <laughs> um, but um, you know they, they they really wanted someone to address some challenges uh, um, and, and staff and with a great board, uh, some great board leadership. We've been able to really turn the ship around and, and uh, it's very satisfying to, to kind of look back and see where we've been. And I know you're going to talk to Eddie Doucette in a bit. He, yes. he was there on day one with me. So he and I kind of, a, Eddie was appointed by uh, David Stern to, to dig into the hall of fame and see what he could do to help us be successful. And Eddie's been, there every step of the way. He's my right-hand man, and, and he and I have become very close friends, and um, he, he bleeds uh, Hall of Fame uh, blood. Uh, he, he loves it, so I'm glad you're talking to him as well. Yeah, how's your relationship with um, with Eddie? Because you two, you, two, you two have an unseen chemistry. I've noticed that covering you two just like A and B. Like. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, we've been doing it a long time, um, and he's, you know, he's a consummate pro. And he's been giving me pointers and tips and made my uh, ability to present and do press conferences right. uh, better and better over time. And, and he's just, I mean, he is just such a wealth of basketball knowledge, too. You want to talk about a, a walking museum. I mean, he, and, and you'll talk to him, but, um, yes. you know, he started with the, with the Milwaukee Bucks. The, the team had just been formed. Yeah. He did the radio and he sold tickets. Yeah, he sold ticket sales. He yeah, he did everything. Sponsors. Yes. I mean, he was, he was um, like one of very few people in the organization, but he became the face of it. And I'll tell you one story. This is really cute. We were up there um, for some event in Milwaukee. Okay. So he wanted to take me to a, a local diner, which was one of his favorite restaurants. So we'd walk in and, and uh, we could put into a booth where people really can't see you. But okay. then he's talking to me. And all of a sudden, somebody comes around the corner and says, 
I recognize that voice. You're ready to set. Isn't that wild? <laughs> and then, and then after that started to ripple through the restaurant, like seven or eight or ten people came up, and uh, it was amazing. Yeah. But people, because he was on radio and then ultimately on TV, but because he was so notable uh, on radio and his his, uh, his, his dictionary uh, of uh, basketball terms was very popular. Yeah. Um, we still love him there. Yeah, he covered a great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, which is the NBA's leading scorer right now, with, I believe, 38,387 points. We got LeBron James in fourth. I believe he's coming up fast. But, but yeah, he covered a great Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and coined the, the phrase – Sky Hook. Yeah, I can't wait to talk to Eddie. <laughs> right. No, he uh I like to say that Eddie was ESPN before there was ESPN because he he understood the value of making um the game entertaining. Yeah. I mean try try to imagine if, if you had never seen a basketball game and you're listening to it and how boring it could be and how frankly how boring other people were presenting the game. Right. Um but Eddie Eddie knew that being with a new team and being um you know, breaking through and being different and getting people excited to buy tickets because that was his responsibility too. Right. That he had to make it different, and right. uh, so he really, he really ushered in that uh, that sense of personality um, in in broadcasting. Yeah, and he started at a, uh, a local as a local disc jockey, which is crazy. He just put his head down and made it happen. I love stories yeah, like he, that. He, in fact, <laughs> he was uh, he was actually at a, a soul music station and very very popular. Uh, up in uh, Milwaukee. Yes, he's like face of Milwaukee. They could use him now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. They yeah I wish they would hire him back because I think people would love to to hear him do games again. Of course, he's he's uh, almost eighty, so right. um, he's pretty happy in San Diego where he's living. But right. um, uh, he 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 loves to uh, you know he he just he just would love to be back in front of a microphone. I think people would love to listen to him. He's just such quality. Right. You've seen so many um, inductions. Is there any that sticks out in your mind? Um, you know, it's, it's, there, there certainly are classes that, that um, have highly notable people like, a, like right. a Michael Jordan yeah. or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson. But, um, you know, I do get to see the whole class. I get to meet the whole class. I right. get to meet their families. Um, and I will say that, that what I'm struck by each and every year is um, how humble the individuals are, how much they uh, uh, love and understand the game of basketball and what it did for their lives. Right. Uh, their families are so proud. And, and, and I go back to that, you know, it's kind of that emotion when they, when they hear they're going into the hall of fame and they got some time to think about it, then they get here and they see everything in front of them. Right. Uh, like I say, that their whole basketball life flashes uh, in front of them. So, so I'm not weaseling out on any specific class, but I just got to say that it's every year is a joy you understand. to meet the new Hall of Famers, their families, and hear their stories. Right. Um, because they're all different, um, but they all, you know, they they do kind of go back to uh, parents and grandparents raising kids, uh, high school coaches keeping them in the game and keeping them in school, a college coach, um, you know, getting them into school and. and uh, you know, hopefully a lot of them have graduated. Um, so there, there's a there's a thread of a story that kind of goes through um, every Hall of Famer that comes through here. So it's it's uh, it's nice to see. And and then you know because of who we are, we we study Dr. Naismith and and you know what he wanted this game right. to be, and he wanted it to be very inclusive. 
So you probably know that um, literally one month after he invented it for the men at Springfield College, he was up teaching the women's college uh, in Northampton, Massachusetts, Smith College, the women how to play there, and uh, befriended E.D. Henderson from Washington, D.C., was called the father of black basketball to introduce the game to African Americans. He, you know, he was a he was a guy that wanted this game to be celebrated and enjoyed, and to give people opportunities, mostly to be healthy, so you know, spirit, mind, and body to be healthy, yeah. and also uh, to to get along, to assimilate. Um, and it worked very well. He'd be very proud of where the game is uh, today. Uh, I know based on the values that he has. Yes, definitely. Who would think in 1891 he started with a peace basket and would become what it is today? A lot of people yes, are grateful for that peace basket right now. <laughs> yeah, well, the story goes. This is just, maybe you know the story, but when he was in the gymnasium, he he called over to the custodian and said, "Go downstairs and get me two boxes." And so he says, "Okay." And he goes down in the basement, can't find any boxes. And I assume these were like, um, you know, boxes you'd see at apples. Yeah. You'd see apples or fruit put in. Right. He said, we don't have any boxes, but um, we do have these two peach baskets. And he looked at it. He goes, okay, those will do. Nail them up on either end of the of the, uh, of the uh, court. Yeah. Which was kind of a gymnasium with, uh, it wasn't really a basketball court because it wasn't vetted yet. So there were actually pillars in the middle of it. But, right. Um, and they hung it at uh, 10 feet, which it stays at today. But, you know, the kind of moral of the story is it could have been called box ball. Right. Uh, the janitor had two boxes in the basement. But, um, <laughs> you know, those kind of anecdotes right. um, are right. great historical things. And the other story I love to tell is, is um, very few people know this. Maybe maybe you do. But, of course, the backboard was never uh, part of Dr. Naismith's game. The, 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 um, the uh, peach basket was nailed up to the basically around the YMCA's, there was a running track above the gymnasium. Right. And so uh, what used to happen when, when basketball got competitive is that people would go up to the second floor on the running track and use their umbrellas. And as the opposing team came down, they would poke away the ball from the, from the basket and, and it'd be impossible for them to make a basket. So the backboard was designed to keep people from poking at the ball of a shot and not as a, not necessarily a shooting aid. Okay. I find that story fascinating. <clears throat> it definitely is. Definitely is. Look, um, I've noticed, well, I've, I was able to cover a couple, um, community events at the, at the high school, the local high school. The kids there yes. love it when the high, when the, um, inductees go there. They love it. All the kids are excited, especially I went yeah. to year when, um, Ray Allen went there. Or got inducted. The kids went crazy when when he went up on stage with Katie Smith. It was a great experience. Yes. Yeah. No. That's uh, that's a big part of what we do. And and uh, you know, unfortunately, in Shriners, uh that time of year when the kids are in school, or we do we do more things right. uh, in the community. We we do touch at least a couple of the high schools. I know this year Nancy Lieberman um, announced the donation of another basketball court in the north end of Springfield, which is predominantly Hispanic. Right. Um, we had a boule luncheon uh, up at Springfield College for 75 African American young men and women that are high school students looking to go to college, and and uh, Sydney Moncrief was up there, and and uh, we've had <clears throat> other speakers in the past. I mean, Grand Hill was uh, last year, and it, you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, an asset that we want to share with the kids um, in Springfield because this is. This is where the game was invented, and these kids live in a city yes. that's, you know, somewhat challenged. 
And um, they need to take pride in that. And I think that, that we're sharing that message with them. But uh, that is something that is another highlight, frankly, of the Hall of Famers when they say, I loved doing that. You know, it's not right. like a chore. You know, they feel like they, they're obligated. They, they you know, they're, they're walking in with a new title and it's called Hall of Famer. Yeah. Can you speak on the partnership the Hall has with Hagger? Because their jackets are specifically made for each person that's inducted into their class. I mean, that's part yeah. of their highlight also. Can you speak on your relationship with them? Yeah, so the uh, the Hager jackets, Hager. Uh, we actually worked with Hager to um, design the color. We used to give a blue blazer, which, you know, if you were a, a Hall of Famer and you wore a blue blazer, you could be anybody. Right. Um, but, but much like football and like the Masters uh, champion, we wanted to have an identifiable uh, jacket. So we worked with them uh, a few years ago and came up with uh, the orange color. Uh, we call the orange color Naismith orange, um, and we give them uh, the jacket. We give them a Hall of Famer ring, and then we also give them the spire, which is that that tall kind of Emmy Award-looking thing that replicates what's out front of of, uh, of the Hall of Fame here. So they get three uh, mementos of their of their Hall of Fame enshrinement. But the jacket is meant for them. When they're with us or even if they're speaking on their own at a local Rotary Club or a local college or something, you know, we hope that they will wear that jacket um, to signify their that they're Hall of Famers. And at the same time, um, you know, it does support what we do, just reminding people about the Hall of Fame. Where is the Hall of Fame? Who are the great uh, members of the Hall of Fame? And so we wanted to really find that identifiable opportunity. Yes, I can't wait to see the new renovations that you've done. I can't wait to come back and see that. Hopefully taking the whole next week, the ne- the whole weekend of the 2020 um, induction. Yeah, so that's, uh, it'll be the same weekend. It'll be the weekend after Labor Day. Um, so I think that's the, I guess the 10th, 11th, and 12th. Right. Um, and uh, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a big one. And then it's going to be, you now Michael Jordan uh, was a big one. That was our first sellout. Right. And Symphony Hall. Um, and we anticipate this one is going to be every bit of that, if not if not more. So um, be, we hope we don't make too many people mad by selling out of tickets and, and that kind of stuff. We're going to try to manage that as best we can, get out in front of it. Yeah. I w- we were thinking, like, how are you going to handle the, um, the autograph signing? Because with all those Hall of Famers potentially getting in, the, the line's going to be around the building before you even open. I'm thinking maybe six five in the morning, like just lined up trying to get yeah. in an autograph. It's going. To be <laughs> yeah, so that's as you've got um, you know people that sometimes don't like to sign autographs, and I'm not sure about um, what Kobe's uh, feeling on that right. is, what his autograph company is, right. and, and Tim Duncan and and Kevin and Greg Popovich. Now there there may come a time when when uh, it, we respect that we're Hall of Famers, so you know what right. I'm not gonna. I'm not going to do that part. I'm going to do everything else. Yes. And, and that's fine. That's fine. Um, you know, uh, but, but I have no indication that's happening now, but, right. but uh, we've had people in the past. Michael didn't sign. Um, and that's because, that's because he had a deal uh, with a exclusive card company. And we, of right. course, respect those relationships. Yeah, I think Jason Kidd didn't either. I think he was ill or something that year. I remember Jason Kidd didn't show up either. Yeah. But, yeah, and uh, so that's that can be some personal um, yeah. decisions that they we understand right. that. John, thank you so much for giving me some of your busy time. 
I appreciate it. I look forward, like I said, to meeting you again and seeing you next year for the 2020 Hall of Fame induction. I can't wait. I cannot wait. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing you, and uh, you're going to give Eddie a call now, so tell him I said hello. Tell him uh, his biggest fan says hello from Springfield. Will do. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining Great. me. Take care. Nice to talk to you. We'll see you again soon. Yes, I'm joined by the voice of the Basketball Hall of Fame, Eddie Doucette. What's going on, Eddie? How are you doing today? Hey, John, I'm doing terrific. Why Why? Uh, why wouldn't I be? I mean, hey, beautiful <laughs> day. It's another day. Uh, the Basketball Hall of Fame is doing great. The game of basketball is doing well. Right. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm honored to be talking to you right now. And to think everything, well, you've, you. everything you've done started, you were a local disc jockey. That was part of your beginning, correct? Yeah, you know, I, I tell you, John, I I think I've reiterated this story many, many times, but uh, when I was 10, I decided I wanted to be a broadcast, sports broadcaster. Right. But the, the journey was not an easy one, and uh, not a lot of people are willing to give up what they've got. So trying to cut the herd wasn't easy, so I tried another route. Right. And uh, I had to get into radio some way, so I got involved as a disc jockey. And uh, I had that the early part of my career and enjoyed it immensely and it uh, taught me a lot about what I could carry forward and as a sports broadcaster so right. yes I was a DJ yes I had a lot of nicknames yes I had a lot of fun but it got me to where <laughs> I wanted to go and that was a big thing right and you were the original voice of the monkey books you were there from the ground up and you were able to cover our leading score right now in the NBA um, Kareem Abdul Jabbar, which I believe had 38,387 points. He's right now our leading scorer. Um, how was it covering him? Well, I, I was very, very uh, fortunate to have had the, uh, again, using your turn, the honor of covering Kareem. He and I became good friends. Uh, and I think I, I think I just about covered every major milestone in his career. Uh, in fact, the night that he broke the scoring record, right. he became number one. I was doing that game for the USA Network. It was a national televised game. And um, uh, so that was kind of the culmination of everything that he did in his career right. that were landmark occasions. In fact, uh, uh, back in 1974, I had been uh, prior to that, but not very often. But that was the night the Skyhook was born. Right. I came up with that one in Boston. So uh, covering Kareem was a um, was a special. I've told many people in all the games and all the sports that I've covered over the years, including the NBA, the NFL, college football, Major right. League Baseball, you name it. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the unequivocally most intelligent athlete I've ever dealt with or ever interviewed. Right. And so... Uh, he was a challenge in that uh, you need to be prepared. You need to know what you were talking about because he expected the same out of you as right. he did out of himself whenever he went on the court. Exactly. And his interviews show, as you just alluded to, <laughs> he's very intelligent. He's very intelligent. Over your 16-year broadcasting career, how was it covering – how did you go back and forth from covering different sports? Was it just a simple switch for you? Well, you know, I, I uh, started out with Milwaukee, as you mentioned. Right. And uh, once we got ourselves established and people associated me with the team, 
uh, and people would listen and pick up our broadcast. It led to other opportunities, which got me into baseball, right. which originally, when I was a youngster, that's really where I wanted to go, because the NBA really wasn't a factor at that time. I mean, it was in existence, but it certainly wasn't of the magnitude it is today. But uh, I was afforded the opportunity of getting involved with the Milwaukee Brewers and then the Houston Astros, the Cleveland right. Indians, uh, and, and eventually with the Dodgers. So basketball led me to that opportunity and then to the NFL uh, with the Rams in Los Angeles and uh, college football with USA Network. And actually, USA Network opened the door for me to uh, get into all these other sports. In fact, I honestly, and I tell people this also, they, they, they say, well, you've done a lot of sports. And I said, yeah, I've done just about everything except nude celebrity bowling. Uh, and I mean, that's, what, that's what you have the opportunity of doing right. when you go with a network. And uh, I had that opportunity. So it all started with basketball. It's continued with basketball through the years. Yes. That's really been my number one. But I've had that opportunity of traveling the world right. and doing everything else in other sports. You've carved your own way into the broadcasting world. How important is it to being unique and staying to being yourself? Because that's what you did. You carved out your own lane, and you just opened up a lot of doors for yourself. Like, with me, for me... Like, I always try and tell myself, just be yourself. Don't try and be anyone else. And it'll all come naturally. How important is it to just be yourself in anything that you're doing? Well, I would tell you this. When I was a young boy, my dad was a chef. Okay. And he eventually ended up being one of the first chefs on television. And, you know, I, I, I started to get this passion, like I mentioned, when I was 10. Okay. And uh, along the way, we became very difficult. I grew up on the East Coast, and we moved to the Midwest, the Chicago area. And, you know, it was tough because I had a very heavy Eastern accent. Okay. Back in those days, they would tell you that if you really want to get into broadcasting, you, you can't be very heavily indoctrinated toward an Eastern sound. You had to have something which was kind of vanilla. Okay. And so I had to work extremely hard, and people were not allowing me the opportunity of getting into the game. So I had to work extremely hard. And so I had a sit down with my father one day, and he said, "Listen, let me let me just tell you something. This is a tough business. Uh, a lot of people don't want to open their doors to you because they're protecting what they've got. But if you really want to get into it and make it, you got to make it on your own." And that means you've got to come up with a style which is indigenous to you. This is you. So that when people listen, they can say, hey, that's Eddie Doucette right. and not some other guy. Because I think you and I both know, if you listen now, you go up and down the dial. A lot of these guys are very good, but they all sound the same. And I think that the, the secret for me was right. that I had to create a style which was Eddie Doucette and that was to be creative. Creative, a reporter, but an entertainer as well. And when you do that and combine the two, you figure out ways of doing things and saying things differently than a lot of broadcasters do. I was able to do that, and a lot of that came from the creative work that I had to do as a disc jockey. You know, when you're doing things, spinning records, getting in and out, saying cute things, funny things, whatnot. Right. I was able to embody that, incorporate that, into what I was doing in my play-by-plays, 
So then it became a form of entertainment as well as information. And that is how I was able to get into it and create a style which was me and nobody else. I got to tell you, this is a pleasure watching your craft. Like I said, my outlet, the Outlet Emmy panel has covered the last three uh, who Paul press conferences and jacket ceremonies. And watching you introduce the players, the way you interact with them, and you make the show fun, it's, uh, you're doing a great job. I love your craft. Well, well thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and you know, I, I've talked to people about that, and people have come up and said pretty much the same thing about how I interact with the players. Fortunately for me, right. having been in this game so long, I have met and worked with, interacted with so many of the players that come forth at the Basketball Hall of Fame. Right. So I can go back in my mind to the things and the occasions that I've had interacting with them right. and draw it out when we talk, when we interview, when we bring out little points or cute little things about these guys you know, human interest things. Hey, people want to interact, and they want to be able to touch and get close. They want to know people on a different level than what they see in a guy putting the ball in the hoop. Right. So they want to know about that person as a human being. That's the thing that I always try and incorporate and make things as conversational as possible for whomever might be watching, listening, or there at one of those press conferences to make them feel like they're a part of what I'm talking to the player about or they're talking to me about. So uh, I'm glad you noticed that because that's something that, that I try to do intentionally right. and have a lot of fun with and make it fun for the people that are there. Right. So i got to ask you, in 2013, you were on the other end. You were inducted for the Kurt Gowdy Media, Media Award. How was that experience for you? That was an experience that was certainly never expected uh, it was an experience I, I would have dreamed about having put it on another layer above just being, uh, the, having the career that I was having or had yeah. and having had the opportunity to accomplish a goal and a dream. This would have been, uh, this would have been the whipped cream. This would have been the thing that was right on top of the, uh, on top of the cake. And it certainly turned out to be that way. I, uh, I was amazed. When I got the call, I couldn't believe it. Then there was the, the emotional uh, event that followed it. Right. Then there was the event of telling my family and uh, and then thinking about how my father and mother would have been so emotionally caught up with the occasion because they knew what I went through to get to where I wanted to be. It was incredible. Uh, I don't know what would be be higher you know for anybody to get that award which really in our business is probably the ultimate i mm -hmm. mean you, you know other than being a player and going in the hall of fame as an enshrinee receiving that award which um because kurt gowdy was an idol of mine right. it kind of came full circle for me and there i was up there receiving the kurt gowdy award and able to tell the story about how as a 10 year old I used to go out and stand outside the appliance store and watch the Red Sox games on TV until one day the owner of the store invited me in and said, hey, it's raining, sat me down in front of a TV, turned it on, and there I heard Kurt, Kurt Gowdy doing the game. I had never had that. We didn't have a TV. You know, I listened to the games on radio, right. but never heard the games on TV. So to receive that award on top of the journey that I had had, 
to get to that place in time was the uh, uh, certainly the penultimate, if not the ultimate point in my career. You have a lot of experience, years of experience. What advice could you give someone today that might, might want to get into the broadcasting field? What advice could you give them to help guide them on their way? I would simply say that if, like anything else in life, if you are really committed to wanting to do something and you set goals right. and you decide this is what you want to do, do not waver. Do not get off the track. Do not get outside the lines. Commit yourself and know that it's going to be a journey that could at times. It could be very rewarding at times. It could be frustrating in terms of being able to develop the way you want to develop or getting involved with people where you are employed who see and understand your vision that want to go along with you on that journey right. and help you. I would say, say this is what you want to do, commit yourself to doing it, and then stay the course. I remember uh, uh, so many things about my journey. One of them was when I met the woman that I married, and I've been married now 48 years, and, and I told her, I said, listen, I know that this is a difficult life. I know that because my father's been in it. Other people that I know or have been acquainted with have been in it. And I just want you to know it's going to be difficult. If you feel that you can handle this rough road, brace yourself because not a lot of marriages survive in that business. And I said, if you're willing to go the distance with me and understand what my commitment is, right. I will make that commitment to you equally as strong. Right. And we will do this thing together. But you cannot, you cannot allow me, and I will not allow myself get off track because one way or the other I'm going to get there and I'm going to do it ethically honorably honestly and with everything I got to make that journey a success and I hope you'll be there with me she said I'm there and so there we go and I really I got to tell you that uh, you know raising two boys um, and having the journey and the things that I've had to do and I live in California now but when I left Milwaukee to move to California. The right. first two years I was here, I still had to honor commitments on a contract I had with the Bucks, and I did that because I wanted to. I mean, they wouldn't let me out, but I wanted to. I honored it. And with that commitment and what I had to do here, I was gone over 300 nights a year for the first two years. Wow. Doing what I had to do. And my wife raised those boys. So uh, we were a team. Right. It wasn't me. It wasn't me alone. We were a team. But it was all about commitment. Right. Set the so set the goals, set the course, stay it, and you'll get there. But it's not always easy. You've got to really work hard and commit yourself. And if you do it the right way, when you get to the end of the trail, yes. or close to the end of the trail, you'll feel good about where you've been right. and how you've done it. <laughs> Great advice. I'm taking myself. <laughs> stay the course. <laughs> Definitely. Stay the course, brother. <laughs> I just recently talk, I spoke to um, John DeLiva a little earlier. He spoke highly of you. You two have a great um, relationship. Can you speak on your time working with him? I think John DeLiva, and I met John back in, I think it was 2001. Uh, I think John DeLiva is one of the brightest executives in the country. I worked for David Stern, who I thought was brilliant. 
and I spent four wow. years working right with him at the NBA. And I thought he was a brilliant marketing man. I think John DeLiva, for what he does and the way he's done it and what he had to deal with. Right. And I know firsthand because I was out on the road with him doing R&D on other Hall of Fames, and we shared a lot of moments, a lot of conversations. I think that John DeLivas is finally an executive and person, as I've met in all my years in my career. Uh, I think the world of the man, and, you know, like myself, uh, he's a team. He's got a wonderful wife. They work together. I, and I think that the, uh, the proof is kind of in the pudding here, John, right. in that John DeLiva took a product that was really hurting, the Basketball Hall of Fame. Yes. He got a hold of it and took it through some really tough days, 9-11 being one of them, and the whole feeling in the whole marketing industry and advertising world at the time was, hey, we don't want to talk about anything about just trying to hang on to what we've got and trying to get things back on track here in the country. Right. He took it through that storm and a few others and has made a magnificent uh, testimony to the game out of the Basketball Hall of Fame, and he's the man behind it. I, I, I admire him, I think the world of him, and he is a good friend. He's a good person, a good man. Yes, he is. It was a pleasure meeting him there. It also was a pleasure talking to him. It was a good conversation. It definitely was. When you broadcast the games, there were no three-point line, and the game has transitioned, evolved, and technology has evolved. Looking at the game now, how can you say it's changed the way games are broadcasted? Well, the game is the game of basketball itself. Uh, I think from from when I got involved to where it is now, has has changed from a, a pure game basketball to a game which is really laced with entertainment value, and uh, and that's all because of marketing. Right. And had that not happened. The game would have not been saved at the professional level. That was because of David Stern, who, as I just alluded to, is probably the most brilliant marketing person I've ever been around, and I've been around some good ones. Right. But he basically saw the need to develop an interest in individuals that played the game rather than the overall concept of the game. That was the base. That was always going to be there, the core. But then he, he took, he saw in the individuals playing the game a lot of marketing opportunities and value to escalate the entertainment value of the game and created the mega event that it is today worldwide. And that in itself, I think, is a big change. So from pure basketball to entertainment, not to the level of the Globetrotters because they take it to another degree right. because you're still playing quality basketball and the Globetrotters play a pretty good game too. But what I'm talking about is advancing it through the entertainment avenues to a point where when you go to a game, you're entertained from the time you get to the arena till the time you leave. Right. It's almost a car-to-car experience now. Uh, that was never the way it was then. You went to the game, you saw the game, there was a halftime, you had the second half, the game was over, you left. Now you can count on being entertained from the moment you get there till the moment you leave. Right. You know what I'm talking about, I'm yes. not sure your listeners do as well. Yes. The other facet of the game that is changing the game considerably is that we have gone from an inside game or outside in game to an inside out game. 
And that means we have stretched the floor to a point where the three-point line has become a major factor in the game. And that has created different avenues, different angles, different opportunities to score the ball inside. A lot of what we have right there was enhanced by the entree of the European element to the game. Because when the Europeans came here, they took a game which was kind of a north-south game and made it a a game which was uh, a full-dimensional game by shooting the ball from distance. And I'm not talking about just the guards. I'm talking about the big men. I had occasion to uh, broadcast Arvita Sabonis when he came over from from, uh, Europe, from Lithuania. And I saw a man that could play inside, outside, outside, inside, you name it. This man knew how to play the game. He was a purebred basketball player that incorporated all the elements of the game. He could shoot the three. He could shoot free throws. He could play in. He could pass the ball. And a lot of those European athletes, a lot of the foreign athletes can do that. And what they have done, they have really forced a lot of the players that we have in the game today to learn how to do the same thing. Definitely. It makes it for a more complete game, a better game, on top of the fact that it's an entertainment value. So I've seen all of that happen. Right. I've seen the pure basketball player kind of step aside, and the more athletic, the bigger, the stronger, the complete player step into the game and entertain as well as play the game of basketball. Yes, there's a lot of players now, as you just mentioned, they can play out of position, <laughs> play one through five. There's a lot of positionless players in the NBA now. It's oh, crazy. Yeah, you take, a, you take a, a Giannis in Milwaukee. He can play one one through five. Yes. He can play the point. He can play the two. He can play the three, the four. He can play the five. Yes. He can He can, He can. can do everything. He's going to have to, uh, in, and I think they exposed him a little bit here in the FIBA games, the world games, yeah. he's going to have to learn to use those other four elements on the floor rather than feeling like because he is the man, he's got to do it all by himself. Right. And I think so that could that could work to his detriment. So, uh, uh, you know, I think it's good and I think it's bad. Right. I, I just like, I, but I like the idea of being versatile. I really do. It shows that a lot of these people can really understand the elements of the game. Right. If he does stay in Milwaukee, can you see him adding to the the Bucks legacy as Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar did, almost being as oh, big as Kareem was there? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, particularly, and I think this would be the key ingredient, um, he's saying that he wants to stay there. Yeah. If he stays there, then he is the guy. I mean, right. and, he, and he continues to advance his game. Yeah. No, I don't know that he's ever going to get to the point where he's going to break Kareem's scoring record. I mean, that's that's a hard one to, to uh, conjecture. Yeah. But but if he were to stay in Milwaukee and all the points and accolades and honors that will be bestowed upon him in the years to come right. will be as a player on the Milwaukee Bucks, he would be the guy. And, uh, and and that's, boy, that would be a tough, I mean, if you were to do that and accomplish that, surpassing Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who I call the king, yeah. come on, that would be quite an accomplishment, but very doable. Yes, very. He has the talent, there's no doubt about that, and he's only growing. 
still been growing. And I think that I think the amazing thing about it, and a lot of people don't give the man credit, uh, John Hammond, who was the then general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks, on one of his many trips to Europe, uh, trying to uncover the gym, found him playing in the lowest league in Greece, right. in a gym that you and I wouldn't want to step on, and he was in there playing and scoring less than ten points a game. Saw something in him that that told him, "Hey, this is the guy." Right. And he went ahead and drafted him. And people said, "Who?" Well, by then people were starting to understand because John, I'm sure, uh, had had enough notes and had had conversations with other people. But at the same time, trying to protect what he had found, and boy, was he right. John Hammond contributed a lot to what the Milwaukee Bucks' success is today. Yeah. Not only contributing in the players. The general manager, a bright young guy, John Horst, yeah. his protege, who trained under John in Detroit and in Milwaukee. So you got to give a guy like John Hammond a lot of credit. Yeah, and fan, the, the, the Milwaukee fans are buying in. It's always a packed house. <laughs> Every game is a packed house. <laughs> Nothing better than seeing those seats filled. I, uh, I remember my first year with the team. I was hired as the first publicity director. I wasn't hired as the broadcaster. They weren't even thinking about that. And I, I can vividly recall, I was a publicity director. I was selling season tickets. I was doing the marketing, right. doing the media guy, doing a lot of stuff I didn't know how to do. <laughs> but I had a lot of energy, <laughs> yeah. you know, 18 hours a day. And uh, when they wanted to hire a broadcaster, the uh, one of the premier, pre, uh, uh, primary owners of the team at that time was a gentleman named Wes Palawan. He knew me because he used to send me out for speaking engagements. Okay. And the feed- feedback he was getting was such a day. Here's a young guy that uh, is really into it. He's excited about this team. We didn't even have a name at the time. And, and eventually he came around to a broadcaster and he said, we got a guy. This is what he wants to do. And I remember going back to the office when they informed me after a board meeting that I was going to be the broadcaster and the then president of the team was a fellow named Ray Patterson. Okay. And he came into my little cubbyhole and he said, I hear you're going to be the broadcaster too. <laughs> and I said, well, yeah, they've offered me the opportunity and I like, I can do it. Right. Uh, I'd like the opportunity. And he looked at me and he put his finger in my chest. He said, well, I need you here. I need a publicity guy. I need a t- ticket selling guy. I need a marketing guy. And he said, I need people. I need somebody that can put people in the seats. He said, is that you? I said, I'm going to try. He said, well, if you don't do it, you're gone in a year. And I said, gone in a year? He said, yes, you're gone in a year, because I don't believe you can do all that. I said, well, I'm going to do it. And uh, and that was how it started for me. And I walked out of that door, and I remember what my father said, back to my dad. And he said, hey, if you're going to get into this business, you figure out a way to do it, and you do it your way. You create a style that people are going to, it's going to be infectious to the point that people are going to want to do and go wherever you are just to see what's going on. Right. And so by doing what I did, I created enough interest in the players and the team that I got people to come down to the games. And today, that's the most important thing, because if you don't have fans, you don't have a team. You don't have a franchise. So you better take care of the fans. In my book, they're number one. Not what I do, taking care of the fans, entertaining the fans each and every night. And I think the Bucks do that. And that's why they've got full houses. They've got a very exciting, 
fun team to watch. A lot of stuff going on when you go to the arena. Entertainment, night in and night out. The city's alive. New new arena, new facility, new area around the arena. They've done a magnificent job back there. Magnificent. And it was everything that I thought you had to do 40 years ago. Right. Making sure the fan was entertained from the time they got out of their car till the time they got into it. Yes. The Bucks are doing that. You've introduced some historic classes. Have you thought ahead to next year's class, which may be the biggest ever, arguably, which could be include Popovich, Kobe Bryant, I mean, Kevin Garnett, Tim Duncan. This class is potentially one of the biggest. Have you looked forward to that yet? Uh, you know, I saw the uh, I saw the, 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 the prospective class members yeah. who would be eligible yes. and got a little excited about that. But I've seen some good ones in the past. Yeah, I know too. you have. You know, I know you have. You know, <laughs> here's the deal, John. And we, again, the Hall of Fame is interested in those classes because that's that's what's going to sell tickets for the people that come right. and see the class at the Enshrinees and hear yes. them. You know, the, the things that we do, the press conference, the, the Legends Dinner, uh, obviously the, the big night, the ring ceremony. Right. These are all based on uh, the fact that we've got a certain group of people coming in year in and year out. There have been a few years where we thought, nah, this might be a kind of a down year. Even though we've got good people, yeah. they don't really have the household name yeah. of the classes with the Barclays and the Shaquilles and the whatnot. Right. And then when you start looking into it and looking into these people, and then you hear them, you say, hey, there's a lot of magic here. Yes. So I think within each class, there's an element of magic, yeah. which is compelling enough to sell tickets to people. And of course, this one here is not nearly is not going to be nearly as difficult to sell as some of them in the past. Right, right. This, this will be uh, when can I get my ticket? And <laughs> how soon can I get it? You know. Yeah. This is going. This is going to be a fun. This is going to be a fun group. Yeah, I was telling John the ticket line for the um the autograph signing going to be around the building before it even opens up with a potential class. Because even if some of the yeah. attendees don't come, most Unless there's like something sent out, like a lot of fans, they're going to come to try and get autographs. That line's going to be crazy. I'm so anxious for next yeah, year. I'm, I'm, I'm anxious. <laughs> You're anxious to get there, aren't you? I'm anxious. Huh? Well, well that, and that's good. And that's the feeling we want everybody to have. We want everybody to come to the Basketball Hall of Fame because it's a tribute to the game and the people who have played the game. Yes. A lot of people way, way, way back when, the people will say, well, why do you have that guy in there? Why, why are you going back that way? Because those right. people labored in anonymity. They were people that were back there then. They were doing everything they could do to giving their heart to the game, playing as hard as they could. You never heard about it again. Yeah. Today, of course, with, because of all the social media and television, these people become bigger than life. But there are a lot of people who contributed to the game that made it possible for those things to happen along the way. They need to have their day in the sun as well. And that's that's why we have the North American the Committee, the Early African American Committee, right. the uh, International Committee. These are all important elements of what the Basketball Hall of Fame is all about. And I think, even though there were a lot of people who were skeptical about why there were these various layers and these different opportunities for people to get into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Right. I think some of the other leagues, the baseball, 
maybe probably the last to acknowledge, but certainly the National Hockey League, the NFL, some of these other big leagues are starting to acknowledge the fact that they have to go back and take a look at some of these people and, and pay homage to them. Yeah. And uh, and I think that's what the Basketball Hall of Fame is always about. John DeLiva and his people, and certainly Chairman Jerry Colangelo, have had a major, major role in taking the Hall of Fame to the next level because of some of the, the, uh, the things that they've introduced, some of the creative activities that they've introduced and brought to the game right. and have made it possible for the fans to become intrinsically involved. Eddie, I want to thank you so much for giving me some of your valuable time. It was an honor speaking to you and John. This is one of the most specialist interviews, shows I've had since I've been doing this. I have to say that. It was an honor to speak to both of you guys. The things you're doing in Massachusetts with the hall combined together, you're doing great things. It's only getting bigger. Congratulations on all your success. And once again, it was an honor speaking to you. You're so experienced. I'm going to take your advice, what you said about keep pushing, apply it to my own journey, and make it happen. Thank you for joining me today. Well, John, let me tell you, it was nice to talk to you. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to draw on, on uh, something here that you might know, you might be familiar with, and something that I, I, I kind of always kind of move me along. Back from my DJ days, okay. uh, I love music. I love music of all kinds. I was particularly... Um, had a particular passion for what they did at Motown. Okay. And uh, one of my favorite songs that I used to use all the time to kind of get me going was a song by the Impressions called Keep On Pushing. And that's what you got to do. You got to keep on pushing, brother. I mean, you got to just keep on going. And it's heads down. It's like you're playing a ball game. It's right. like the same thing if the coach says you're in there, you got to go in there and give it your all. Right. And that's what, that's what I have always tried to do. And I think that if you do it that way and do it ethically, then when it's, like I said, when it's, when it's all done, right. you can look back and say, hey, man, I did it my way and it was the right way. And that's, and, and that's what I would urge you or anybody else that might be listening that wants to establish a career, whatever it might be, right. and work hard to attain it. Yes. And, uh, <clears throat> and the other thing is, remember, people are always looking at you at all times. So as I also like to tell people this, you're never fully dressed until you wear a smile. So keep those things in mind, John, and it's always good talking. Uh, You take care of yourself, stay healthy, and hopefully we'll see you at the Basketball Hall of Fame next year. Yes, sir. Thanks again for the interview. Take care. Okay, buddy. Bye now. Bye-bye. Yes, that was the voice of the Basketball Hall of Fame, Eddie Doucette, the original voice of the Milwaukee Bucks. Sheesh. I want to thank the Basketball Hall of Fame for taking over the NBA panel today. Catch the NBA panel, all social medias, keyword NBA panel. Check out the website, nbapanel.com. See all the high-profile interviews, uh, media coverage. Thank you for joining me. Catch you next time.